The sermon today is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of God. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been, not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are on done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One per person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no need of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after win. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, it is no light thing to consider the oppressions that take place under the sun. It is no light thing to consider, Lord God, that under the sun we see conflict. And we don't just see it, in other words, just merely natural evils, but evils that human beings willingly, voluntarily inflict upon one another, often in malice and other times out of sheer envy of one's neighbor. Father, help us, therefore, to understand what this passage has for us. Help us not to see this as a bleak passage that drives us towards hopelessness, and bitterness, but rather a passage that drives us towards a greater worship of you and a greater acceptance, Lord God, of us as creatures living under the sun. Help us to see, Lord God, that this is exactly what you would have us to know. That if we take these things to heart, then we could truly be alive, we could truly live in this world in wisdom, and we could therefore truly point others, Lord God, to what really matters, the eternal kingdom that was brought forth by the greater mediator, Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we go through this passage, help me be clear, help us understand this, and may you be present, and may you be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, we're continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and we're continuing on in chapter 4 today, as we saw verses 1 to 16 right here. And as we're going through this passage, I just want to remind us again of the greater overall theme of this book, right? The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is really... Um, said really well by uh, Tazar, our other elder who's been preaching the last few weeks, it's a professor, Solomon here, um, someone who is wise, who is probably towards at the end of his life, telling us, taking the youth 
the young men of the day, and taking them out of a make-believe world of happiness, of rosiness, and realizing and causing them to see that much of the world is painful. Much of the world is suffering. Much of life is suffering, and life is finite, and death is coming. And we saw that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 already. We saw that if we live our lives in such a way where we think that we're living forever, we're merely kidding ourselves. If, if we live our lives merely for self-indulgence, it's not going to last. If we try to make heaven on earth right here, right now, if we try to say that this is our final home, this is our final destination, that's only going to drive us to a greater sense of bitterness, a greater sense of futility, and causing us to realize, therefore, that pursuing earthly pleasures, earthly riches, earthly immortality even, right, is utterly futile. And so the wisdom oracler here, the professor Solomon, is taking the youth and saying, son, if you want to be wise, take a deep look at reality. The rich and the poor, the same end awaits them. The wise and the ignorant, the same end awaits them. Uh, reality isn't partial. It doesn't consider the deeds that you've done in your youth or the deeds that you've done when you're older. It simply says to you, the, the author is simply saying to you, consider the fact that you're a creature living before God and it is only, only when you see that reality is not under your control but under God's control and that reality is a place filled with suffering and that everybody has the same end where then you could live wisely. Take a hard look at reality. That's what Solomon here is trying to get us to see. It's a wisdom, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of wisdom literature. It's, it's trying to get us to become mature thinkers and mature, therefore, in our lives. And so if in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Solomon is making us consider the inevitable futilities of life, the inevitable sufferings that come with life, the inevitable deaths that we're all going to come to, in chapter 4, he's kind of pivoting. It's not just talking about the sufferings that come inevitably, naturally, death is coming, uh, um, loss is coming. But he's honing in on the suffering, not just that come naturally, but suffering that we inflict upon one another, which is sometimes even more unbearable. It is one thing to say, look, there's going to be sickness, toil, and, and death coming your way. It is another thing to say that much of that suffering is, in a lot of ways, unnecessary. Much of that suffering comes out of pure human envy and malice. Much of that suffering is something that we voluntarily impose upon one another. Much of that suffering, therefore, could be alleviated. If only we were not envious, if only we were not bitter, if only we were not uh, simply trying to rule over our neighbor. So there are three things that we want to point out from this passage here. We're going to go through this, hopefully, pretty closely. So keep up with me and, and have this text right before you. Three things I want to point out. First, the vanity of ruling over our neighbor. Second, the temporary relief of earthly friendship. And third, the heavenly kingdom received. All right, so that's where we're going. So first then, verses 1 to 8 tells us about the vanity of ruling over our neighbor. Look at verse 1. Consider this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. Notice what wisdom requires us to do here. Wisdom tells us that we have to look at the oppressions that are under the sun. Don't distract your way yourselves from these things, but rather consider these things. And the professor here, Solomon, is saying, 
I'm looking at these things. This is what I am thinking about. This is what I'm contemplating about. And he's asking you to join him. In the second part of the verse 1 there, it says, Behold the tears of the oppressed. So the first thing we've got to note is, wisdom means not taking our eyes away from oppression, but actually taking a look at oppression, causing us to see that this is actually what happens under the sun. Don't distract yourself away from the harsh realities of life, but take a look at it deeply. Consider it. Contemplate it. And it is interesting that throughout this passage, the author isn't telling you to do anything about it. That probably comes later, but at this point, in this few verses, he's simply telling you wisdom means contemplating at it. Consider the atrocities that have taken place by means of oppression. Consider human history. Consider the facts of imprisonment, of slavery, of oppressing one another simply out of envy and malice, not just in grand proportions in, in the atrocities of history, but in the everyday lives of everyday people. Consider that one generation after another generation, there are families locked in poverty and slavery, and that there are other families who are constantly ruling over them. So consider then that as well. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So there's this understanding in this first few verses that when you consider the atrocities of history, when you consider oppression in and of itself, and you really think about this, you're going to see that on the side of the oppressors, there was power, which implies that on the side of the oppressed, there was utter loneliness, there was unalleviated suffering and weakness, there's a constant note of despair on their part, and this is something that constantly happens. In other words, what the book of Ecclesiastes here is saying is that reality has no, oftentimes, no discernible moral order. What do I mean by that? It has no discernible moral order. A discernible moral order um, predicts what ought to happen and, and predicts reality as if what ought to happen will happen, right? Where we often desire reality to conform to a moral order where those who are evil are the ones oppressed. Those who are evil are not the ones winning. They'll, they'll get justice upon them. They'll get punished. That They won't be the ones oppressing all the time. They, they won't be the ones getting all the power. Those who are evil should be judged and therefore should not be enjoying oppressing other people. That's a discernible moral order. And then at the same time, those who are lonely, those who are brokenhearted, they would be lifted up. They would be comforted. But instead, this passage is stark and, and, and confronting us with the reality that oftentimes when you confront what is before you under the sun, you can't discern this moral order, could you? And I'm so thankful that this passage is in the Bible because what this is telling us is that Christianity is not trite. It's not contrived. It doesn't tell you that the, the world is a rosy place and everything's just going to work out. Christianity, in other words, in the Bible is the polar opposite of Christian movies. Why are Christian movies so bad? You know, I just discovered this genre of Hallmark movies from last month because a few of our ladies actually decided to watch Hallmark movies for a Christmas event. And I didn't know what Hallmark movies were all about, right? So apparently they're movies designed for Christmas on the Hallmark channel. That's what Hallmark movie is. Not a Hallmark like a classic movie. That's what I thought. But Hallmark movie is its own genre. It's the so bad as good genre. Um, <laughs> where you could predict everything that's going to happen by the end of the movie from the first few scenes, right? Where maybe, you know, the first scene is a broken family. And by the end of it, you know that marriage is going to go well. 
You just know it. This first scene is where a girl, a teenage girl is depressed, and then at the final end, there's a prom scene where she's dancing with her lover, right? There's just, everything's gonna work out. And oftentimes, there's this moral message in between. What happened? How did she get the boy? How did the marriage get together? They read their Bible. Boom. <laughs> Everything just seems to work out. You know, a financial uh, disaster becomes something that will profit them in the long run. A broken marriage becomes something of a beautiful family in the long run. Everything works out. Everything is predictable. And therefore, you can sense everything is fake. You could sense that. You notice that, you know? Um, why, why, do, why, do, why do people love sad endings? Well, maybe I do. Maybe I don't know about you. I love sad endings, all right? Because I sense when I'm watching a movie with a potent sad ending, I'm not just seeing this as a good movie. We know what I say? I say this is a realistic movie. This is a realistic novel. And this is what the Bible confronts you with. We can hear a lot of people become bitter against God because they say to themselves, well, look at reality all around you. Look at, look at my life. I, things haven't worked out for me. Even when I do all of these things for God, shouldn't it all turn out well in the end? And maybe it does for a little while, and then suddenly another calamity hits. And you lose another child. A disease comes your way. You can't get over the financial hump. You lose a brother. And then you think to yourself, where in the world has God in all this? And I'm so thankful there are passages like this in the book of Ecclesiastes because it's telling you, this is not surprising to God. This shouldn't be surprising to you. And yes, we ought to mourn it. Look at verse 2 and 3. Look at what it says here. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Boy, is that bleak. You know what he's saying? If you consider the oppression that is taking place in the world, it's going to make you wish that you were dead. It's going to make you wish that you were dead. Uh, I, I've lost count of how many times during dinner conversations people have said, let's not bring that up, man. It's a Friday. Stop thinking about that. So we do so many things to distract ourselves from considering the serious realities, the tragic realities of life, because we know that if we really consider these things, we would wish that we were dead. How, who could bear these things? Who could bear it? Verse 3, it goes even deeper. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So consider the progression here. Verse 2, it's saying, I, I wish I were dead. I wish I didn't have to see these things. Verse 3, it's saying, I'd rather not be born. Because then if you, if you were never born, you would have never needed to consider any of these things. You didn't even wish that you were dead. You would just not be, right? And so there's, there's this real sense where, where the book of Ecclesiastes is right now telling us, once you confront the realities of life, there's a sense of loss of innocence. There's a sense of dread that's just going to come your way. And, and those who have just been born, it's, it's not really going to see. If you're not born, you won't see this, right? And this is, we get this kind of instinct when, for example, we bring a toddler around. And then what would happen if someone simply took up an iPad and showed the first scene of Saving Private Ryan to a toddler, right? Where it's, it's, a, it's a horrendous picture of war, where people were getting shot and, and, and torn apart by, by, by fire and... Uh, just the calamities of war, right? You would say, stop that. You have this instinct to protect the child. He, he or she is only two. You can't show that to him or her. You know, that's why the child, child soldiers is so, is so tragic because we were seeing that 
These are children. Let them be children. Let them not see the atrocities of life just yet. Shield them a little bit longer. They shouldn't be 11 years old and having to see these things. We should shield them from these things. They should still be innocent. Loss of innocence is a tragic thing. And loss of innocence, oftentimes then, in that kind of context, isn't when they did something. It's when they're exposed to something. Not because of anything they did, but because of simply exposure to what actually happens on the outside. And so you feel this kind of dread. You feel this kind of sorrow. And the the book of Ecclesiastes here is saying to you, in almost like a cathartic way, you should mourn these things. If you're, in fact, if you're not mourning these things, you're not wise. If you're not feeling that sense of dread, that there's so much evil in this world, you're not a wise person. That's what it's in effect saying. You know, John Webster in an essay on the sorrow in the Christian life, he basically says in that essay, if you want to know a person's moral compass, know what they laugh at and know what they weep at. It's a profound thing. You want to know somebody's moral compass? You know how, how, why somebody is? Know what they weep at and know what they laugh at. And perhaps what they're weeping at isn't the oppression of other people. They're weeping at their own losses. And then when they gain over somebody else, when they oppress somebody else, they laugh. Consider the fact that when, when we were, you know, oftentimes, for example, before we were Christians, as we were growing up as young boys, we used to laugh at the fact of pornography. Laugh at the fact of drunkenness. Laugh at the fact that we used to hide behind our parents' backs certain ways. Laugh about the fact that we used to bully certain people. Laugh about the fact that we used to slander certain people. We used to proliferate gossip about certain people. And then suddenly you realize, after you had become a Christian, those things just want to make you weep. And when Facebook pops up a picture of you from seven years ago, it doesn't make you laugh anymore. Makes you look at that and say, what in the world was I thinking? The very thing that used to make you laugh now make you weep. So sorrow, yes, sorrow presupposes sin, but sorrow, when it is directed at sin, reveals a good and wise nature. It's it's telling you that something's right. If you're feeling the weight of the tragicness of life, you, you know that your moral compass is active. You know that this is what you're supposed to be weeping about. You know that this is, this is something that doesn't deserve laughter. It deserves sorrow. And if you're weeping at it, good. You're functioning. You have a moral conscience. You feel the weight of this. And, and, and wisdom means considerate. And lest I am glorifying depression, I'm not. Because in, in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, he's going to say that it is better to be in the house of mourning than it is in the house of feasting. Because if you're in the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting, you're realizing this is the end of man. And then in, seven, in chapter 7, verse 2, the second part of that verse, it says, the living take this to heart. In other words, if, if you want to live well, you take to heart that mourning is going to come. And so you come prepared. You, you come to the realities of life, and you're not shocked by it. You're not taken aback by it. You're not seeing this and you're not completely rendered horrified by it because you're realizing, Lord, you've warned me about this. You're not surprised by this. I shouldn't be surprised at this. I should therefore come unto life and not become bitter on the one hand and not become utterly shocked on the other hand. And so therefore I can take up the responsibility willingly to live through suffering and obedience before you. You know, if you went into a hospital and somebody told you this is a luxury hotel, 
you're going to walk around and you're going to say, what kind of place is this? This is absolutely ridiculous. There are sick people everywhere. There's, where's the room service? What's going on here? You're going to be completely disappointed. You're going to walk out. You're going to be bitter about the place. But if I took you into a hospital and I told you this is a prison, you're going to think, hey, this isn't, this isn't too bad. You've got nurses around. People are getting fed. There are doctors around. The beds aren't that bad. You've got some kind of privacy here. You see, if you believe that life is a rosy place meant to be for your comfort, for your happiness, something that you're entitled to, you're going to become bitter as you grow older. But if you come into life expecting that this isn't a place full of comfort, that you're not entitled to things, that when comfort comes your way, it's a gift rather than something you deserve, then suddenly that root of bitterness, that root of envy, that insidious desire to just shout back at God and reality, that could go away. All right, so that's the first three verses here. Consider that and, and live wisely in light of that. Verse 4, then I saw all toil and skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. If in verses 1, 2, and 3, it's considering the fact that oppression happens out there. Verse 4 now causes us to see that oftentimes we are the causes of that oppression. Why? Well, because of envy. Verse 4 says that sometimes all of our work and all of our skill comes from simply envy. It's not because we love our work. It's not because we enjoy the toil. It's not because we cultivate the skills because we're in love with what we could produce with these skills or we love excellence for excellence sake. We sometimes pursue excellence simply because we know that if we do this, we're going to get ahead. We're going to have more than our neighbor. So your pleasure is not actually in the object of your work, but rather in having more than your neighbor. And that's absolutely stifling. That's absolutely exhausting. I'm reminded of the quote by C.S. Lewis who said, lust causes you to pursue to sleep with a woman because you really believe that she's beautiful. That's lust. Pride causes you to pursue a woman simply so that you could have her over someone else. We could apply that in so many different ways, right? Um, a lust for work, a lust for music can mean that you're pursuing music so you can get the pleasure of music again and again and again. You're actually enjoying music in and of itself. But then if you're pursuing music as your career simply out of pride, out of envy, you're not pursuing music because you love what, is, what, what you can produce with it. You simply want to produce music because you want to get richer than your neighbor, because you want to get more people to listen to you than others. That's why we have this phenomenon where bands sell out, right? Ten years ago, they were doing folksy, jazzy music, and suddenly now they all sound like chain smokers. They're following the market. They're not in love with the music for the music's sake. They're changing the music so that they could, have, they could stay ahead. They could have more than the other. You see, that's envy, and that's absolutely stifling. And, and envy, actually, in verse 4, leads us to... Bitterness in verse 5 or a frenetic kind of restlessness in verse 6. Envy, if, in other words, if you're working and you're crafting a skill purely out of envy, you're going to end up either bitter or you're going to end up in frenetic restlessness, as one commentator says. In verse 5, you see this image of the bitter fool that folds his hands and eats his own flesh, Right? How does this connect to verse 4? Well, it's saying here, if you're envious of someone, you're going to work so hard that one day you're going to realize that you simply are not going to win over some people. There's always going to be somebody that is ahead of you. And what might happen to you is you might simply, therefore, be tempted to become totally idle, totally passive. 
Because you're, 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 you know, you're bitter. You're constantly mum, murmuring to yourself, ah, I'll never have more than a person. This is just the way reality is. Reality is unjust. Ah, never mind at all. I'm just going to stay in bed. I'm going to fold my hands. I'm going to just mock people. And so you're passive, you're bitter, you're, you're murmuring unto yourself. You're constantly comparing yourself to others. You see, all the evil people, they always get what, what's right. You see, I try all my best and nobody rewards me for it. And so you just stay in your room. You don't want to do anything. You play video games all day. And there's a kind of freedom in that because then you can tell people, well, I'm not even trying. So I'm failing because I'm not even trying. And that, that could feel virtuous, but it's really not. It's really the, the image here, again, is stark, right? It's a fool who folds his hands and it, it eats away at his own flesh. Bitterness causes you to kind of devour yourself. Bitterness seeps into your soul like a poison. You swallow it and it just eats you up from the inside out. And not only that, you have nothing to contribute. You have nothing to show for it. You're cannibalizing yourself. On the other hand, you might not just be idle in bitterness. In verse 6, it says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Verse 6 is the image of Someone who's constantly chasing other people's opinions, trying to get status above everybody else. And they try to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. They're the kind of person that in verse 7 and 8 pushes away friends for career, pushes away family for money, pushes away relationships because they think that relationships are not an end in in itself, but rather a hindrance to getting ahead in life. And so in verse 7 and 8, you see this, this person is utterly lonely. It says here, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. So no family, no brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. He's just trying to be number one all the time. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Sound familiar? So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So both bitterness and frenetic restlessness causes us to become unhappy, causes us to eat ourselves, and causes us to be choreographed by the emotions of other people. So we utterly become lonely, and in our busyness, in our bitterness, we don't stop and ask ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Consider, friends, why do you do what you do? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you feel the pressure to reply to every email, even if it's 2 a.m.? Why do you feel the pressure to pressure your children to make sure that they follow in your footsteps? Why do you feel the pressure in keeping up with the publish or perish mindset of the academy? Why do you feel the pressure of pleasing every student in your classroom or every parent that comes your way? Why do you feel pressure to make sure that church attendance keeps up at a certain rate? Why do you keep comparing your Instagram followers to other people? Why do you try so hard to make sure that other people know that you're getting certain types of things more than other people? Why do you work so hard? Be self-conscious about why it is that you work so hard. Why do you craft your skills so hard? Are you working because you actually love what you do? Or do you simply work because you want more than others? And friends, that is an unhappy business because you're never going to be satisfied. And so the second point tries to alleviate the starkness of verses 1 to 8. If it's completely vain, if it's utterly hopeless for us to simply pile up riches, to toil for the sake of the accolades of others, to get more and simply get ahead, well, what's the solution to that? And verses 8 to um, 12 gives us a temporary relief. 8 to 12, 9 to 12, sorry, gives us a temporary relief. If, if, if in verses 1 to 8, 
The vanity is in ruling over others and getting more over others and simply getting accolades, getting ahead of other people, using other people. Verses 9 to 12 gives us a temporary relief, right? The temporary relief of earthly friendship. It's telling you it's wiser, it's better not to use others, but to love others. Consider what it's saying here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. This is reiterating um, the atrocities in verse 1 that, that he emphasized. Consider the oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Consider the fact that loneliness is worse than poverty. Consider the fact that friendship is a good end in of itself. Instead of using other people, consider therefore the two are better than one and they're a good reward for our toil. That you ought to do this for friendship, that you ought to love your neighbor. Consider the fact that you need one another. So why are we spending all this time oppressing one another and ripping each other apart when we need one another? Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And this is in the context of survival, right? If it's a cold winter night, it's still better for you to, to comfort one another. So let me just say this. If, if any of you men are thinking about this, this is not talking about something inappropriate, okay? So if some of you are here tempted and saying, Hey, girl, consider Ecclesiastes 4.11. Don't do it. It's survival, okay? It's not about physical intimacy. So anyway, I just thought that thought came to my head, so I thought if that could come in my head, that probably came in some of your heads, so don't do it. <laughs> consider. All right. But, but, but the main point of 9 to 12 is that whether it's in survival, whether it's in comfort, and verse 12, whether it is in... Um, um, competition. You always need friendship. Companionship is an end itself. And verse 1 to 8 is basically telling you um, what not to do to keep friends. Verse 1 to 8 is basically all the toxics that could ruin all friendships. Verse 9 to 12 is telling you why you need to keep up with your friends. It's good for survival. It's good for comfort. It's good for all of these things. So don't use your friends. Love them. Care for them. Don't look inward and envy your friends. Look outward and consider them. And that actually is a temporary relief, but it's only a temporary relief because the book of Ecclesiastes isn't going to let you hope just yet too much because in verse 13 to 16, it's giving you this parable about a poor and wise youth who ends up becoming rich and famous towards the end of his life. Look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all people, all of whom he led. So consider the life of this poor person who became a king, right? So remember, verse 1 to 8 is telling us, you might be rich, but you might be lonely. And in verse 9 to 12, okay, then let's not consider richness. Let's consider friendship. Let's consider remedying loneliness. Let's consider to comfort and love one another. Let's become popular. Let's become, let's gather ourselves with a lot of friends. And verse 13 and 16 kind of dashes upon both of those things and says, well, but even if, even if you are rich and you do get a lot of friends, consider what might happen. Consider this person. A poor young man who's wise, so who's got all the knowledge, who knows how to get around, who knows what to do in this life, 
who becomes old, and as he became old, he became a king. And through, therefore, he has the accolades of others. His life is filled with people, right? Look at verse 16, the first part. There was no end of all people. All of them he led. So he led a lot of people. He led one generation. There was no end to them. He was the object of praise of the many. He was the popular prince who became king, right? Yet, those who came later will not rejoice in him. Um, so the book of Ecclesiastes is telling you, so even if you became rich and popular and even a king with many followers, at the end of the day, when you grow older, there's going to be a new generation who didn't remember what you did. You're going to be simply an, an old fact in the history books that people will get bored over. They can't remember what you did. You were a thing of the past. You can't have the same kind of popularity again. And so once again, is telling you riches and companionship at the end of the day, if they're pursued in and of themselves without reference to an earthly kingdom, they won't satisfy. They won't satisfy. You know, my, my dad every month, he, uh, he's nearing 70 years old now, and I think it's a beautiful thing that every month he's actually meeting with his high school friends in a kind of reunion. And he always tells me, Gray, you know, you got to keep up with your friends because... You never know when you're going to go. And he makes sure that he prioritizes these meetings because he says, every time I meet them, the group gets smaller. The group gets smaller. And he would ask the question, what, what's, what's all this for? What's all this for? And friends, I don't know where you guys are at, but, but life is a vapor. Um, life is tragic. And if you're telling me that you're not afraid of death, I think you're lying. Sorry, I think you are. You know, people say, uh, well, after death, there's just nothingness. Where I'm fine with that. It's like sleeping. No. Death means the loss of friendships and love. Death means no longer enjoying one another. Death means seeing that these relationships that mean so much to you here ended. Death means sometimes those who are young could die, and that's tragic. Or you live old enough where you see other people die before you and that's tragic. So consider why are you doing what you're doing? Do you cherish your friends? And consider if there is no God, on what basis would you expect death to be a comfortable thing, to lose all this? And wisdom forces us to encourage thinking about these things because third point here, we need an eternal kingdom, friends. The book of Ecclesiastes is relentless in forcing us to confront the realities of the fact that everything that you try to make eternal here simply is not going to last. You will fail. We will fail. No matter how hard we try. And in chapter 3, as we saw last week, God has put eternity in your heart. Deep inside you know that these love relationships are not meant to end. Deep inside you know that justice has to be carried out towards the oppressed. Deep inside you know that you ought to comfort one another. And deep inside you know that there's something that should last forever, right? And this is exactly what's revealed in the New Testament, friends. Because the book of Ecclesiastes anticipates a time where you will see that you're not the king, but there's a king. There's a king in the future. They will rule over you, but will not oppress you. There's a king in the future that will come and comfort the oppressed. There's a kingdom in the future that would, ha would, would be an eternity of existing love relationships forever. I love our assurance of pardon in Hebrews chapter 12. 
verses 22 to 24. Take a look at that. This is the hope of the Christian. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels of festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What are some of the things that this is telling us here? What did Jesus come to do, friends? Jesus came to take you to heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly kingdom that you didn't achieve but received. This is something you're invited into. So why should we envy others? God has given you entrance into a heavenly kingdom that causes you to be able to love your neighbor, It causes you to be able to not envy your neighbor because what have you gained that you did not receive? What have you earned that you did not receive by grace? How dare we envy, envy others? How dare we lord it over others? And if we have everything, why should we still be insecure? Why should we still compare ourselves to other people and therefore use what we have against other people? Not only that, it's telling us here that we're invited not to just the heavenly kingdom where we received and not achieved and so we could not envy other people, but also a heaven with an assembly of the firstborn. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Here, there's a kingdom of friendships that will last. Here, there's a kingdom of love relationships that will utterly last. And finally, in verse 24, there's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, because God, who gave us the book of Ecclesiastes, saw the plight of man, and friends, believe me, though he might seem to be silent over this, though he might not seem to be present over this, consider, he has come not just to be with us, but in the flesh, in Christ Jesus. He's not the transcendent God, aloof over your sufferings. He's the transcendent God who became flesh, who took on the suffering to comfort those who are oppressed, friends. And so, therefore, we can have hope. And we realize that, that, that this suffering is not for nothing. This suffering is not something that God is passing over merely in blindness. This suffering is something that he entered into. And so Christianity is not mere humanitarianism. Christianity is not simply telling us, well, this is all going to end. You know, that's it. Christianity is telling us we would not save ourselves by our own morality, by our own toils, by our own attempts at humanitarian friendships. God himself came down in the flesh to become our friend, to comfort the oppressed, to give us a hope, a living hope, relationships of love that would never end. And friends, that's what God offers you, and it's completely by grace. And if we know this, this is not just a future thing. This is something that you can enjoy and embody today. When you're having friends in this church, you're embodying this heavenly kingdom. You're communicating to them, you are an end in themselves. You are an end in yourself. I shall be your friend even if it doesn't benefit me. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not interested in making friends to get ahead. I'm interested in you as a person because that's what God did for me because that's what God had shown me. He loves me. And I won't be envious of one another because I have everything in Jesus Christ. And I will live in wisdom. And I don't need to distract myself away from the atrocities of life because I know I will do everything I can to alleviate unnecessary suffering because we've been saved by grace alone with the example and the Savior of a new mediator in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.